0: And try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Henrietta Moon, CEO and co-founder of Carboculture. Carboculture makes functional biocarbons and biographite from waste to keep CO2 out of the atmosphere. They're working with green and blue infrastructure and carbon negative materials developers to start a new era of carbon culturing. We have a fascinating discussion in this episode about the origin story of the company Henrietta's background and what led her down the path of caring about this problem in the first place. We talk about the carboculture approach, their starting point, their traction to date, their long vision, and what's coming next. And then we have a great discussion about the industry in general and what the different steps are to scale a company of this nature what the right capital sources are what some of the challenges are and what some of the changes could be that could help carbo culture and other companies like it move faster henrietta welcome to the show thank you jason great to be here great to have you i'm so excited to learn more carbo culture gosh the company name comes up everywhere and it sounds like you're doing some fascinating <laughs> stuff and it's just such a great honor to carve out an hour and dig in with you on on the company and on your journey
1: Thank you. I'm super psyched to be here. It's wonderful to be part of the community and seeing it grow so much. And yeah, it's definitely a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, taking things from the top, what is carboculture? Yeah, what do we do? Well,
1: we remove carbon and put it in a stable form so it doesn't re-enter the atmosphere for a thousand years. And how do we do that is that we let plants capture the CO2 from the atmosphere. But if there were let to be lying around, they would decompose and re-return. So we take that plant matter, aka biomass, we use waste biomass, and we turn it into a stable form of carbon by taking it to a very high temperature for a split second. And it turns into almost pure carbon. And this is called biocarbon or biochar. And then it can be used for soil enhancement, for example. So, So it's a way to take that plant matter and turn it into a stable form of carbon.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And I was going to ask you how the company came to be, but maybe looking even further back, tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you come to be doing the work that you do and caring about the problem that you care about?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was born and brought up in Finland, which is a country that's still 76% covered by forest. So (laughs) nature is a big thing there. And I've grown up, you know, scraping my knees on rocks and going out to sea and stuff like that. And so, so it's been a very big part of my life. I was a scout since I was a kid. And I did marine scouts or sea scouts where we were sailing a lot. And environment has always been close to my heart. But for some reason, I didn't think that I was good enough to study biology or something, so I didn't go down that route. But later on in life, how I ended up working in this is that I found that entrepreneurship was just my vehicle of doing stuff, like getting stuff done and making an impact. I'm a very impatient person, so so startup seems like my cup of tea where everything goes you know, 10 times faster than everybody else, or that's what we like to think. And so entrepreneurship plus this purpose of environment was kind of like the perfect fit. And even in like the past couple of years or the decade, past decade, I've seen environmental change with my own eyes. So when we, when we take groups out to sail, I'm a sailing captain now. And when we used to take groups out to sea, like kids, sometimes I couldn't let them swim, even if it was a super hot day because there was a toxic algae bloom in the Baltic Sea and that's directly linked to humans just putting too much nutrients in the sea. It's been a dumping ground for nutrients for for the past, you know, however long. And now, obviously, we're trying to clean it up. But taking something out of somewhere where when it's once already in there, like, like these parts of nutrients from the entire sea, is very tedious. And now, obviously, that's a direct analogy to... To what we're doing with climate change, where we've just put too much carbon in the atmosphere and it's heating up our planet.
0: And how did those dots end up connecting? So so you were sailing and you were out at nature and you were seeing some of the changes with your own eyes and very concerned about it. And you had discovered the, I don't know if you call it a craft or the sport of entrepreneurship. So how did those end up intersecting?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I used to used to do other stuff. I was running a company called Me Hackett that was creative technology education. It's a little bit of impact entrepreneurship there. I'd started a couple of like entrepreneurship festivals and, and whatnot, been like super active in those early community in Helsinki and, and Europe in general. And we brought some Stanford professors to Finland to talk about entrepreneurship. And, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid, let's say. And in any case... At one point then, because of my work with a Rails Girls community that we, I helped build up. My friends launched a community for women in programming, and I, I helped kind of bring it to a global scale. The global community, it's a totally open source project, and it's in 300 different cities, completely volunteer run. But in any case, because of that work, I was kind of like drafted into this program called Global Solutions Program, which happened at NASA. Ames in California in 2013. It was called Singularity University. It was a very cool nerd camp back then. It was three months of trying to figure out which technologies to deploy to solve some of the world's biggest challenges. And I mean, as an impact entrepreneur who had, you know, dabbled with a couple of companies or organizations, I was like a fish in the sea. It was amazing to find other people that wanted to solve huge, like global problems, like you know, cancer detection or or something else. And suddenly you're surrounded by these peers who want to do something. And over there, I met my co-founder, Chris Karstens, who we ended up starting Carboculture with later. And we just decided that we want to work on environment. And the most imminent, like, big problem to us seemed to be climate change. And then we were kind of looking at different aspects of climate change and what we could do. And Chris had looked at a bunch of different technologies before as well. And we just tried to find the most elegant solution to actually make direct impact as soon as possible. And that's how I kind of ended up here. So I had a technology partner who brought in the the idea of what we're doing today. And I had the experience of launching stuff and that's kind of two things combined and, and then Carboculture could exist
0: and so did the technology come first or did the idea for a potential solution come first and then you went searching for the technology like what was the spark that actually led to this becoming a company
1: yeah it's a great question i mean the spark was me and chris meeting because we just had so complementary skills that it was it was just a a good combination and chris had already scouted and he had worked on Different kinds of technologies, everything from graphene research to looking at biofuels and all sorts of stuff, and kind of lived in that world for over a decade already. And so his knowledge of kind of what's worked and what hasn't was very, very important for us when we set out. And at that stage, we actually went to meet a professor and a research group at a university who had been doing basic research on a technology already for over a decade. So like all the best things, no technologies are actually new. <laughs> like direct air capture is a, you know, 80 years old or something. It was used in submarines already in the wars. This technology also had kind of like existed already for a decade, but nobody had thought of commercializing it and taking it to scale and testing it in the real world. And so that's what we sought out to do.
0: Got it. And then the technology itself. So you said it it, it takes waste from, is it forests?
1: Yeah, right now we're using agricultural waste. So think of things like nutshells, peach pits, and not just the hard stuff we've been doing, experimenting with. Beetroot pulp or industrial waste streams that have woody residues and all sorts of things. So, we'd rather not touch new forest unless it's from an area that's like fire clearing or something else. So, there's enough waste biomass going around.
0: So, where do you get the waste? Well, right now
1: we're parked behind a walnut processing facility or actually an almond processing facility. So, in Central Valley in California, the food industry is humongous. It's impossible to imagine how big these things are. So they take all these you know, nuts from a 50-mile radius and bring them to, to one of these processing plants where the food gets packaged for consumers and we get the waste. So actually, we don't go and collect it from the fields or anything like that. It's already centralized for us, which is nice and convenient for us as we're working on the technology bit and trying to minimize logistics at this stage.
0: And what would these processing plants do with the waste if carboculture wasn't there?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, they've been used for roadsides or <laughs> or something else. It is a big problem for some some of these food processors. And in Central Valley in California, open burning is still a thing. So, So there are days that farmers are allowed to burn their waste openly because the existing Biomass power plants that used to be there used to be the, kind of like the dumping grounds for these things, and solar power is so much cheaper. And these biomass power plants are filled with forestry clearing from the Sierras, so so they just have to get rid of the waste somehow. And that's one of the reasons why the San Joaquin Air District or, or the Central Valley is one of the most polluted areas in the U.S. in terms of air pollution. So right now, people just try to get rid of it somehow.
0: Should we be thinking about the problem that culture is addressing as, as reducing the issues caused by how they're disposing with the waste today, or is it a different problem?
1: I think it's still a different problem. So burning agricultural waste is definitely a problem in, you know, outside of New Delhi, for example, there's a company, I can't remember their name, that are addressing this problem or, you know, in Central Valley, it's a big issue, but usually biomass... If it has some calorific value, like it could be still used for food, it'll probably go to animal food or something. Like these things should be circular, but they're not. I think it's more of a problem of the industrialization of our our food chains. I think what carboculture is, like our sort of number one problem is how do we get that carbon and make it stable so that it doesn't re-enter the atmosphere? and this this waste and getting our hands on it is a you know excellent segue for us to get our get enough of this biomass but in the future we might need to be a little bit more creative about where it comes from
0: uh-huh and so it's not necessarily the carbon that would have been emitted from this waste but it is sequestering carbon that was already up there from other places
1: Yes. So so naturally, plants and biomass take down hundreds of gigatons of carbon dioxide annually and also re-release it. So if we're thinking of, hmm, how do we get to 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide removal, the fastest, cheapest, and most energy efficient as possible, then maybe we should employ these allies of ours called plants that actually use solar power and do it without added electricity with their own chemistry that they've been perfecting. But if we leave these plants lying around somewhere, like if you think of a forest, it will not 10X in size after its maturity, it will remain a certain size and all the excess biomass that's generated just decays and re-returns to the atmosphere. So that's where we wanna intersect, right? We wanna take that biomass and turn it into a stable form and build a carbon bank so that it's away from the atmosphere. And if you think about, you know, all the ways that we're thinking of removing carbon from the atmosphere, whether it's, you know, direct air capture or pumping it underground deep into an oil well, uh, potentially to get more oil, or trying to mineralize it or something else, this is like one of the great solutions that could help us do this quickly and without putting a huge amount of more strain on the grid as we're trying to transition into a greener greener economy.
0: Uh-huh. So I'm going to try one more time just to make sure I understand before we move on. So essentially, there's this agricultural waste that would be disposed of other ways, whether it's in the landfill, whether it's during controlled burnings, etc. And you are utilizing your proprietary process using extreme heat that will help get the carbon from this agriculture waste into more stable form that could then be sequestered so that it doesn't end up making its way into the atmosphere. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. And what are the most challenging aspects of that? Is it, I mean, is it mostly stuff that's off the shelf that you're cobbling together or is it new stuff that you've got to invent? Like maybe talk a bit about the process and about some of the most challenging elements of it.
1: Yeah. So turning stuff into charcoal or, or making, making carbon has been something that humans have, have done forever. So that's not maybe the tricky part. But the tricky part is if you want to do it efficiently, in a way that you actually maximize your carbon retention, instead of just kind of burning it up in the air. And if you want to do it at millions or even billions of tons of scale, that's where your problems start emerging, right? So definitely we are developing proprietary technology. We had this patent that we've been building on and, or, you know, the original innovation that was done in academic setting. And now we've been building on top of that and aiming at scaling our technology. And, And that's definitely like one of our pinpoints now, like how much, how fast, what are the best ways of designing this for scalability, repeatability, functionality, safety, et cetera. So those are the things that technically we're focusing on now. And then there's the whole business side of things, right? Who's going to pay for carbon removal? Which kind of clients do we want to target? Do we want to, because we're not just selling carbon removal, we're also selling our excess heat. So this is an exothermic process, which makes energy instead of needing it. And so where do we sell our heat and how much do these people pay for it? And what are the optimal areas where we can do that without too much heat loss? And then there's the biochar itself, like who can we sell it to and how can we push the price of biochar down so that agriculturists or farmers do not have to pay a high price for the polluters who are actually paying for the carbon removal. So how do we balance out these things? And then on top of that comes operations, logistics. Where do we find a half a gigaton of biomass? And is it in optimal areas for the heat use, et cetera? So so definitely, I'd say we have a couple of things on our plate.
0: (laughs) And do you take the waste to you and to a large scale facility or is it more distributed in nature where there's you take the process to the waste
1: yeah so we're distributed in that sense that we don't definitely don't want to build a few huge ones and then transport everything there i mean when you're transporting biomass it's mostly air and water so you don't want to do that so definitely building as close as possible to the source of the waste and in this, this sense, we are modular, but they are not trailer models that we can just shift around, you know, one week to another. So we're talking about 10,000 tons of biomass and up. Like, let's say our medium-sized plant would be something like using 30,000 tons of biomass annually. So that's actually quite a lot. And that's also a lot of heat that we're generating. So these kinds of things need to be considered when we're thinking about locations.
0: And these kinds of deep tech innovations where there's staging and phasing, this has been one of the biggest learning areas for me coming in, given that I had no experience in any of these domains prior to focusing on climate change. But if I look at fusion as an example, it seems that when you're trying to to make fusion work at scale in a cost-effective way, that there's different proof points you can almost decouple from each other and you focus on this one, you know, the magnet, and then you focus on the next layer and you kind of work your way out. Are you building carboculture in a similar way? And if so, it'd be great to understand a bit about how you think about unbundling those things and what that staging and phasing looks like.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I've also had a very steep learning curve, let's say, and and <laughs> happy that that's happened. I, I really enjoy that. And we're lucky to have good people working with us as well. So things need to happen simultaneously, even though, you know, R&D people like think that, hey, we just will only release this to the world when it's perfect, and then business people are like, no, we need to sell it, and we need to make sure that the market wants what we're building, and so forth. So these forces need to be managed in a way that we're working in parallel, because At the end of the day, sales and business development and just even thinking about the logistics and the plan for who you're even going to hire or how do you scale out and, and what are all the things that are involved in that, it takes time and it takes time to find good partners to work with. So I think that that's often underestimated. The amount of other work that goes into stuff, not just the technology, that's of course the critical key part, but things have to happen in parallel. That's kind of like what we're aiming for. And it just takes scheduling, 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 revisiting those plans, making sure that your stakeholders are aligned. Is somebody late? How does that affect everybody else? can we get this agreement through? You know, all sorts of things need to work in parallel. And I have to say, it has been challenging during COVID when we're not all in the same office, you know, meeting face-to-face, we're in different time zones sometimes. And, and yeah, it's definitely something that, that we need to get better at, but that we've recognized that is yeah, we need to do that together.
0: And what about in terms of scaling the capacity? Do you prove it out small, and then a little bigger, a little bigger, a little bigger, or how do you think about that? And also, how do you fund it?
1: Yeah, great question. So tech started out on a laboratory scale, like, let's say, size of a microwave. And when we got it, we were at a 250-pound size, which we've since scaled eight times in volume. So we've done one scale up. Towards the end of the year, we're doing a second scale up, and that's going to be sort of like the pre-version of our first commercial unit. So, so of course, we're doing R&D all the time, but these are kind of like the big sort of scale milestones for us. And there, when we're handling material, there's a couple of different things. Like, there's not just the volume, but there's like throughput, how fast can you do things? Is it stable? Is it reliable? How many hours a year can you run it, et cetera? So, so there's kind of like the fundamental things, which are the big things that you can, you know, easily see from externally, like, whoa, that's a lot bigger than the previous one. But then there's the more mundane things, like, how do things move from place to place that people often forget about, but those are actually the really critical parts. And so, yeah, but we're, we're scaling up in stages. And it's very different to a linear scale up. Ours looks more like, you know, huge steps that we're taking one by one.
0: And is it different? types of capital that are better suited to each one of those steps?
1: Yeah, so definitely. So until now, we've we've had some grant funding from the Finnish government, actually, and also from some competitions and, and things like that, uh, non-dilutive financing. But then we're VC backed. So we have incredible investors who believe that this is huge opportunity and that's why they've been funding our technology R&D as well. But as we go into commercial deployment, even for the first facility, we will be doing non-dilutive funding for that. And especially for the later ones, when we go into commercial development, those facilities need to be funded by not VC money. So basically project finance is a hot topic in climate tech. So how do we funnel that non-dilutive financing into projects when they're at their earlier stages, you know, before normally project financiers who want to see scales of 100 million, 500 million, like how do we get those guys in earlier who have the experience of doing these types of projects, but also who could have a little bit more risk appetite when it comes to these new technologies?
0: And is is there some kind of chasm that you'll need to cross where in the early days, it doesn't require that much capital, but as you try to build bigger facilities, it requires more capital, but the project finance, I've heard, and you're way closer to it than I am, but oftentimes look for things that have been done and proven before. So if you're trying to do something where it requires big capital, but there's also science risk, for example, it can scare them away. So are you seeing that chasm for carboculture? Do you see that chasm in general? is it all over the place in terms of where each company hits that wall or or is it really like an acute spot that it's like oh this is the this is the valley of death or something
1: yeah i mean we're definitely seeing it already even in in the funding for our first sort of commercial facility that will still be owned by us but will have non-dilutive capital in it the risk profile is very different. So I really want to show that, hey, this is how we're reducing technology risk, operational risk, and all these other parts of the, the story that they want to see. And of course, part of that, what's critical maybe also to the listeners is the customer side. Who's going to offtake these products that you're making, the carbon removal and these other things. And those are really the key areas like operational, technical, and business risk that we're trying to take down. And now... There are, you know, we've been approached by all sorts of capital investors who usually do much more conservative projects. So let's say solar or wind or even something more established, you know, where the technologies are very known, how much you pay for the outputs is very, very standardized and so forth. So so these people trying to come into these new climate technologies, there's obviously a little bit of a gray zone, <laughs> as in like how early can they go and how much needs to be approved on the technology side before they can come in as a fund. But I do see changes here. Just like, you know, a couple of years ago, you've probably seen this very closely, like in VC, when we <laughs> we were raising like, you know, four years ago or something, people were like, are you out of your mind? VCs don't do climate stuff, not hardware, not like whatever you're doing and now there's so many so many climate investors at least starting to look at even the harder stuff so that's like amazing and i think the same thing is going on at the other capital sides there's a lot of capital and the people who are putting in the money the families the corporates the pension funds they want to see it go to green stuff So now these people who are actually deploying the capital are being pushed towards, hey, why don't you do something more in these fields? So now they're trying to come up with ways that they could actually enter into smaller tickets or earlier than what they're used to. So I think it's changing a lot. That's good news for all the climate entrepreneurs out there.
0: Well, one question that I wrestle with, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, given that we come from similar backgrounds in this way, but on the one hand, you have the critical importance of domain expertise when you're solving these hard, deep tech types of problems where there are clearly lessons learned and institutional knowledge where you can avoid making mistakes that you would otherwise have made head on if you just hadn't been around to know better. And on the other hand, not many of these kinds of companies historically have achieved significant scale. And I would argue that it's a skill set in itself to know how to bring in the right talent and manage to the index of the phase of the company in a blitz scaling mode where you're constantly needing to revisit and you're building the plane as you're flying the plane and you are needing different sources of capital along the way in different phases and everything is kind of compressed, right? Like that is a skill set. And so how do you think about that tension where the optimistic Silicon Valley style Entrepreneurs that are coming in, they think big. They're brimming with optimism and ambition, and you kind of need that to build something big, right? But at the same time, if you if you lose that domain expertise, then then it can be a repeat of the past. So yeah, like, is any of that making sense? How how do you think about yeah. that? And I I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear you think out loud on on that conundrum.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're so right, and I think I was one of those people who were like naive to the challenge (laughs) as in like wow this seems pretty logical why don't we just do this and then like oh my god (laughs) there's so much stuff to learn here and the kind of mountain keeps growing a little bit every day so I think definitely you need to have passion and enthusiasm when you jump into this but it is a long haul job I'd say and and also like yeah I'd say the commitment needs to be pretty strong, but not to scare anybody off. The opportunity is huge. And there is so much space for different kinds of people with different kinds of technologies to come and come and wrangle this climate change and turn our future into a greener one. So I think, yeah, definitely that bullishness of Silicon Valley and the kind of like, no problem too big to solve type of thinking is is very <laughs> needed. And maybe maybe these people can work together with the researchers and with scientists who have been there for decades going like, duh, and <laughs> and now like bring those two things together and actually, actually make something happen. But, you know, sometimes there is a little bit of what I'm sometimes annoyed at is like this technological simplicity that, oh, well, you can just push a button and the problem will go away. Well, that's not going to happen here. It's going to take a lot of work. Unless somebody comes up with fusion and we actually like push a button, but but that's like, I'd say we have a good 20 years to wait for that moment. (laughs) So in the meantime, we, we need to actually get smarter, have different forms of capital enter the stage, investors who are educated, and entrepreneurs who can rely on each other to help us, you know, grow as a As a community and tackle these problems. So I've learned so much from some entrepreneurs in actually different lines of business. So I have one of my mentors is from health technology, who, who was growing like a company through laboratory phases and kind of like expensive stuff that was real, not just you know, hiring more brains, but actually having to have buildings, locations, you know, scientific releases, all sorts of things. And, and that's actually helped me a lot, having somebody who's been going through that a couple of times. And I think there's good communities forming around, around entrepreneurs.
0: And bringing it back around to carboculture. So what are your key priorities over the next 12 months?
1: Oh gosh, hiring, hiring, hiring. <laughs> So obviously looking for incredible people to join our team who are dedicated to solve climate crisis with us. I am also looking, you know, now that we spoke about the community, I'm also looking forward to meet a lot of my fellow carbon removal entrepreneurs who, you know, we've been going around in circles on the internet, but now that events are actually resuming, it's going to be wonderful to meet people. And I think we all need, you know, so many of us need to succeed. And but for Carboculture, its technology scale-up is number one. Hiring is number one. And perhaps, you know, driving our strategy together and forward is super, super critical. And we are going to be looking a lot more at the non-dilutive capital side as well in the next months, if I'm being brutally honest here, so that we can secure, you know, how do we start scaling up faster without just dilutive capital?
0: Uh huh. Got it. And as you think about the... Path to success for carboculture. I mean, we talked about the technology scale up. We talked about the non dilutive capital to fund that scale up. What about looking outward, things maybe outside of the scope of carboculture control? What is most relevant to carboculture success and what do you worry about the most?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so I have this like personal fascination with. With a little bit of like biology and the ecological integrity. So so I am wondering how we can play a part there and what the future brings. That's not our year one or year two worry, but perhaps, you know, can we find find new solutions where to deploy the biochar? Or how can we enhance the drawdown capacity of biomass or or something else? You know, where can we be most useful is my question beyond just carbon removal. Can we tap into existing natural systems where you can have cascading benefits, just like you could on the negative side as well. I'm sure we can unlock that kind of positive cycles where where if we do one thing, other things follow. So that's kind of like a dream, dream scenario for what we can do in, in addition.
0: One of the things I've been wondering, I mean, I don't know that much about biochar, to be honest, but as I've been making the rounds, I've noticed that some people who've been around for a while, maybe the CleanTuck 1.0 crowd or people like that. You mentioned biochar and they kinda of roll their eyes. Why do you think that is? Why does biochar get a bad rap in some circles and and is there any merit to it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a miracle drug that you can dump in the soil and things are gonna grow thirty percent more. It's not gonna do that. It's not a fertilizer or it's not a replacement for like other (laughs) nutrients going into the soil. It is just pure carbon. It's not a nutrient even. So I think it's had a bad rap because it's been misunderstood. And the tests and stuff that have been done on it have, perhaps there have been many of them, but oftentimes perhaps small scale And with different biochars in different laboratories, different conditions every time. So hopefully, you know, that can change in the coming years. But bottom line is that biochar is here now to solve a new problem and that is carbon removal. So the IPCC has given us like pretty clear instructions Number one, we need to decarbonize and cut our emissions in every place possible. And we need to have 50% of those emissions down by 2030. And by 2050, we need to be at net zero, meaning everything we emit needs to be physically brought down from the atmosphere every year. And that's an incredibly arduous task. And to put that into scale... McKinsey estimates that by 2030, we need about 2 billion tons of CO2 removal, and by 2050, about 10 billion tons. And global capacity today is at like 30 million tons. And so now, if we put aside like biochar doesn't work for crops, well, guess what? It can work for this other problem that's gargantuan. And that's going to need tens of different kinds of technologies to actually get anywhere near the scale that is needed to avoid catastrophic, like over two degree warming. So here's the thing, like, sorry, if it didn't work for a specific crop that was being studied or something else, maybe it can hold nutrients, maybe it can hold water or do some other benefits. But right now, the number one benefit is the carbon removal, at least in my head. And since it's needed, it's a good solution there.
0: So if you could change one thing outside of the scope of your control or carboculture's control that would most accelerate the progress of you and other companies trying to do similar, what would you change and how would you change it?
1: That is a great question. I think one thing that would be great that is completely attainable is that the carbon price should go up, and that should be in the near term. People do expect that carbon removal today could be you know, somewhere near 200 bucks a ton, or or maybe even under that. If it is, there's probably somebody else picking up the bill somewhere elsewhere. So true carbon removal should cost money, because the main job of carbon removal is not just to actually physically bring down the carbon, but it's to show how difficult it actually is, so that people go and actually reduce their emissions. It should not be cheap today, like it should be driving down those emissions. But of course, we want to bring that price down as we scale and so forth over the years. So one thing is that buyers, if your company is a tech company or whatever company you are who's looking at compensating emissions, think about adding some percentage of that emission compensation, which typically is just emission avoidance, like supporting green energy, for example try to add some carbon removal in there, even if it costs a little bit more, maybe add 10%, maybe add 50%, see what you can do. Because everything that's kind of pushing that industry forward is going to help it scale. We're not going to magically scale if the demand goes from zero to 100 in 2029. So we need to kind of ramp that that demand side up as well. So that's one thing. And then another thing is that companies can do, and governments can do long-term purchase agreements. So essentially, that's the key to getting project financing for a lot of these technologies that need significant capital to build infrastructure. So basically, when you say, hey, we want to buy carbon removal, don't say that you need it by your fiscal year end in December or something. Say that, hey, We need this much carbon removal within the next three years, and here's the price for it, or ideally five years, give the developers some more flexibility. And in that way, you're a great buyer because you're offering flexibility to the companies a long enough timeframe that the lenders will see that there's some actual company trying to buy what you're making, et cetera. So, So really, the power of the purchasers is humongous here and can help the industry transition forward.
0: Henrietta, anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? <laughs> well, even if we're talking
1: about carbon removal here, I just want to remind everybody that yes, we're talking about carbon removal here, but again, the the main thing needs to be emission cuts. Like everybody needs to drive down their emissions, and that needs to be the agenda everywhere. Carbon removal can maybe get us to like a third of the Paris Agreement, but not beyond that. We need like deep, deep, deep emission cuts. And I think that's not happening now. So, so that's the kind of reality we need to remember as well, in, in addition to scaling up on all fronts. But yeah, thanks, Jason. It's been amazing.
0: I got one more bonus question I'm going to put in, which is just, if you look out 10 years or 20 years and carboculture is successful beyond your wildest dreams, what have you achieved?
1: Yeah, that would be amazing. I think, you know, somebody said... That the carbon removal industry could be as big as oil and gas is today, so that would be pretty cool if the climate industries were actually the top dogs in, in you know the stock exchanges and so forth. And actually, we would wake up to a greener and cleaner world. I mean, that would be pretty epic.
0: Awesome. Well, Henrietta, thank you so much for coming on the show and tutoring me and listeners on the, on the world of biochar <laughs> and. I hope I made removal. sense <laughs> <laughs> and entrepreneurship as well. But this was awesome. So thanks again, and wishing you and the Carbo Culture team every success. Sweet, thank you so much, Jason. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now.